This is StoryBeat, storytellers on storytelling. An exploration into how master storytellers and artists develop and build brilliant stories and works of art that people everywhere love and admire. So join us as we discover how talented creators of all kinds find success in the worlds of imagination and entertainment. Here now is your host, Steve Cuton. Thanks for joining us on StoryBeat. We're coming to you from the Center for Media Innovation on the campus of Point Park University in the heart of downtown Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. My guest today, Michael Colleri, has been a screenwriter, producer, educator, and screenwriting consultant for more than three decades. He earned an MFA from the UCLA Film School, where he won the Jack Nicholson Award and the William Morris Award for Screenwriting Excellence. Michael has worked for all the major movie studios and TV networks. His credits include Lara Croft, Tomb Raider, the family comedy Firehouse Dog, and the TV series Unnatural History. Michael won a Saturn Award for co-writing with Mike Werb, the highly popular John Woo-directed action thriller Face Off, starring John Travolta and Nicolas Cage. The New York Times deemed it one of the best thousand movies ever made. Since the mid-1990s, Michael has been a visiting instructor for the MFA in Screenwriting program at UCLA, where he teaches the famed 434 Screenwriting Workshop. For the record, I had the great pleasure of meeting Michael when I was a grad student in UCLA's screenwriting program more than 10 years ago. His students have gone on to write, direct, and or produce such movies and television series as The Bad Batch, Patriot, Bojack Horseman, The Punisher, and many more. For his tireless contributions to the program, UCLA honored him with the prestigious Lou and Pamela Hunter, Jonathan and Janice Zakin Chair in Screenwriting. Currently, Michael is the co-creator and showrunner for the television series Professionals, starring Tom Welling and Brendan Fraser, which recently wrapped production in South Africa for a 2020 premiere. For those reasons, and so many more, I'm truly thrilled beyond words to have one of the great masters of screenwriting, Michael Colleri, on StoryBeat today. Michael, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you so much. And uh, that actually sounded very impressive uh, <laughs> for someone who generally works in his pajamas. Uh, uh, that sounded really good. D did you ever shoot a, an elephant in your pajamas? <laughs> um, all right. So so what were your earliest inspirations and influences? What was your first creative love? How did you get down this road? Um, I, I had... I think everyone's journey is, is unique. Um, mine was perhaps destined slightly. My dad uh, was a TV writer and producer his whole oh, is that career. Right? And he, he started off in the early days of television back in New York uh, when really there, there really was no industry yet. Um, it was still developing. But anyway, he ended up being the head writer of Captain Kangaroo. Really? Uh, which is a... Uh, your your younger um, your your younger listeners may not recall the captain, but but certainly baby boomers would. Yes, and it was sort of a, a you know kind of a Mister Rogers Sesame Street type yes. daily show for children out of that was made out of New York. So I definitely grew up. Although my dad was like a lot of dads and just went into the New York City every day to work and on the bus and came home every day. Um, pretty a pretty uh, a standard middle class 
suburban upbringing, um, it, it was also kind of a industry family. We went away, you know, he, he had the summers off and we went away. And so we, we definitely had a very lovely uh, lifestyle growing up, thanks to him being in the uh, television business right. and in show business. So I think when you grow up in that environment, maybe you just absorb it um, naturally. Mm-hmm. I didn't want to be in the industry when I went through high school and stuff. I wanted to be a journalist, and I first went to college to be a journalist. And it was really just kind of by accident that I fell into, you know, I just fell in love with the movies. Unfortunately, when you go to, not unfortunately, but fortunately or unfortunately, <laughs> I found when you when I was an undergrad, when I went to when I went to college, like there were free movies everywhere in the student union, in the dormitories and, you know, film programs and all that stuff. And so I just, I was goofing off a lot and I just ended up going to the movies all the time. And right. I just really fell in love with the movies. So that's how I ended up kind of steering my way in, into this business. What was the first movie you remember having an influence on you? Oh my gosh. Um, the first movie, and to this day, it still resonates with me, believe it or not, um, was uh, the original Batman. Now, now, I was a kid. I was born in 1960. Yeah. So I was at six or seven when the Batman TV show was on, was on with Adam West um, back in the mid-60s. And then they made a film. They made a movie um, that came out like the summer of 66 or something like that. And... I will never forget the feeling I had in my gut when I was sitting in the theater in, in New Bayhead, New Jersey, uh, when I realized that all the Batman villains from the TV episodes were in this now in the same movie. Because mm-hmm. usually they went week to week. There sure. was the Joker, the Riddler, whoever, one villain a week on the TV show. But in the movie, they were all in the movie. And it just seemed like an insurmountable level of bad guys that Batman could, you know, we would never be able to handle all of that evil. And, uh, yeah, that, that made a big impression on me. Um, even to this day, I still remember like as a kid, it was maybe the first time in a movie where I felt like, uh, so connected to what was going on that I actually was afraid for, for Batman and Robin, you, you, which I think was the point, which is I think what they were trying to create. Sure, they got me. You had you had a true young person's visceral experience on that. Yes, I did. I did, and actually, I saw a similar thing in my daughter many, many, many years later, uh, when my daughter was about she was a little younger, she was maybe three or four, and we went to see. Um, Oh, what was that wonderful movie with Amy? Enchanted? Amy Adams, is that the one? Uh, I think it is, is called Enchanted. Called? Yeah, I think so. Enchanted, yeah. And we went to see it uh, at the Crest Theater here in Hollywood in L.A., and we sat in the balcony, and she got so into the movie. She came, she, she was in her princess out, Disney princess outfit, and we, she was sitting next to me in the movie, and she got so into the movie that at the end, when the dragon's on the flying around yeah. and there's all this kind of action she literally leapt at the screen <laughs> and like i had to grab her from going over the balcony <laughs> yeah, she was so engaged in this whole thing so i have definitely seen it in my kids too and it's it actually is a wonderful you know it's what makes it so gratifying really if you can if you can um if you're fortunate enough to to 
evoke that in people. Well, yeah. Um, it, you know, that's the magic part. That, that, that is, that is the part that we, we drag people into that world and they get lost in it because they have such a deep sense of feeling about it. Yeah, and, and, uh, it, and it's very gratifying. Uh, well, I know, you know, I, that, it's great to see it in a movie. It must, be, I'm, it must be fantastic to watch it in the actual theater. Oh. I'm assuming you spent a many, oh. many uh, yes. an evening or afternoon watching, sitting in the audience or standing in the back watching people respond in the theater. I think that must be... It, it's what a thrill, that must be. It's, a, it's an extraordinary thing, especially the very first time or times when an audience live is watching a live performance and they're on their yeah. feet at the end. That's just, that just you know, it's ch- chilling. Uh, uh, and so yeah, oh, it's I fun. I, 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 yeah, I bet. That, that's very, um, that must be unbelievably gratifying. It, 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 it truly is. All right, so when did you yeah. first, I mean, your father was a writer, um, working with yeah. Bob, Bob Keeshan and Lumpy Branham and all those good people. Um, yeah, when, yeah, yeah. They, they, they were, this was, now this was the 60s. This was the, um, you know, the Mad Men era in a way. Yeah. And they would come over. My father apparently was famous for his martini. <laughs> and we would have the, uh, we would have the cast of Captain Kangaroo over, not Keeshan so much. Apparently he kept it himself a little bit. Mm-hmm. Uh, Keeshan, Keeshan is a, uh, uh, was a bit of a Michael Scott kind of um, figure, I think, among oh, is that right? the, uh, the cast and crew. A little bit, yeah. I mean, not as needy, uh, but um, maybe more like the Michael Scott of the English, uh, the, the English, the office. Um, <laughs> but anyway, but the, uh, my dad was very close with, with um, Lumpy Brennan and, and um, Gus Allegretti, who did all the puppets. Right. And... Um, and the other writers, uh, my my dad's gone now, but my, you know, the other writers on the show are still family friends. Well, that's um, that's really neat uh, to this day. And yeah, yeah, yeah. So yeah. so then, when but did you when did you obviously you had this influence in your life, but when did you think to yourself, hmm, I think I would like to do that. I'd like to write. When did you start to write? Um, I, I was in I was in college, and I was I, I you know I had. Been a, I jumped around, you know, I had a typical kind of chaotic, I don't know if it's that typical, but I had a, I should say, I had a bit of a chaotic undergraduate experience. I was very restless. I, I didn't really know what I was doing with my life, although I really loved the journalism part. Um, but I ended up, uh, I started off actually going to the journalism school at Temple University, yeah. not far from where you are. Right. Um, and uh, they had a great journalism program, but my whole family lived in California, and I felt it was ultimately was not fair of me to have my when there's such great colleges in California. Um, I felt you know what I, I can't ask my parents because they might you know they were you know they weren't well off by any means. My father was working really hard in California to, to make it um, after we moved out from New York, and uh, I said you know what I have to go to I can't at Temple University um, and have my parents pay out-of-state fees. It's just not fair, and it's just not worth it. So anyway, so I ended up at Berkeley, um, and this is the time when, like like I said, this is the early 80s, and so this became kind of like the movie brats generation. Right. Suddenly everybody wanted to be in, go to film school and be 
George Lucas and Steven Spielberg. I mean, there was a real excitement around going to, you know, this new kind of phenomenon of the film school, the people who went to film school who then made it in the business. And I just got drawn into all of that. Every, pretty much every, all my close friends at Berkeley, um, well, by all, I mean maybe three or four kids, they all ended up at, at, in film school, at UCLA Film School. Oh, is that right? It was bizarre. Yeah. So, so you were on a you were on so a similar got, flight path then with all these other kids. Yeah, exactly. I think I just got swept along by the kind of the demographic cultural under undertow. Um, but it's not like I wasn't interested. I certainly was. I, I, I definitely changed my my whole passion was about going to the movies every night and talking about movies and and all that. I mean, Berkeley didn't really have a film program. Uh, but they had tons of classes on film criticism and yeah. stuff like that and screening classes. And so that was really my education on on movies, on cinema. That's really where I learned all about the world of cinema. Um, and then, you know, was fortunate enough to get into UCLA Film School when, you know, frankly, uh, I, there's no way to, by, by the qualification standards that are today, I, there's no way I would get in today with the, the puny little portfolio I had, um, <laughs> they, they have really, uh, because I think so many people are following this light, um, what I found interesting about, about UCLA over the years, first as a student and then as a teacher, was that when I started, it really was a bunch of kids like me who pretty much went from undergraduate to graduate. We were in our early 20s. Most of us hadn't really had much life experience, but we just had, did have this passion for movies. Mm-hmm. Well, when I started teaching some years after that, by then the the, um, the student body, the nature of the student body had changed. It, it was people who were old, a little older, in their late 20s or early 30s. Many of them had had very successful careers in other fields. Uh, there were lawyers and the federal prosecutor and um, artists. And people who had done just really amazing things were now applying to be, they were making the change and they're applying to UCLA Film School. So yeah. um, it, it's interesting how, you know, the, uh, things, those things do evolve and do continually change uh, the, the, over time. So anyway, I was very fortunate to have gone when I went and, um, and learned what I learned. Uh, but, but the business is very different. The school is very different now. And, um, and the industries, you know, the craft is very different. Well, we're we're gonna we're gonna get to the difference in the industry from then till now, in a, just a bit. But let's let's stay stick with the, how we get to where you got. Um, sure. So so what was it? W- did you meet Mike Werb in school? I did. Yeah, Mike. Mike is my writing partner. Yeah. For many years, um, and uh, Mike Mike and I entered UCLA at the same time. And if Mike was on the phone, he would say, if Mike was on the podcast, he would say, uh, the reason that we actually became friends, close friends was he, we both lived in the Valley, in the San Fernando Valley. Right. Um, and uh, which is, your listeners don't know, is sort of over this hill uh, from where UCLA is. And uh, it's very, you know, it's not easy. Certainly back then there was no public trans- transport to speak of. And uh, so he still would track me down. He had sold his car uh, to in order to be able to afford uh, the tuition. And so he tracked me down in the valley, and I would give him rides in the valley <laughs> from time to time, which I at first really resented um, because I didn't really know this person. And um, 
uh, <laughs> it was not in my nature to uh, ask for favors. Um, it's still not. Um, but eventually, uh, he won me over because he's a very charming, uh, brilliant guy. Yes, and, um, yes, he is. Uh, we became friends, you know, and film school friends and friends. Did you did you begin to uh, write together in school or after? No, not no, not at all. In fact, um, I, I, you know, uh, in film school, everyone kind of did their own their own thing, um, and we had a lot of classes together, and we did end up after. After we got out, um, starting a little writers group with another writer from UCLA who we were friendly with. Um, but at that time, we weren't. It was not. We were not of a mind to be writing partners. I don't think anyone thought in those terms. Uh, but what it was kind of an accident, actually. What ended up happening was we got out of school. Uh, Mike Mike started working while he was still in school. And then a couple of years later, I, as a writer, and then a couple of years later, I sold a spec. So we were, but by that point, we were kind of editing each other's stuff. We would, we were each other's support system. That's important, and, isn't it? Um, it's, it's so a, he had a, you know, he was working on, for example, he got hired to write machine, the story of Machine Gun Kelly. That oh, yeah. was his big break, and it was going to be a big movie. It never got made, unfortunately. But when before he would submit his work to the studio, he would give it to me to proofread, and I would do the same with the script I had sold to MGM. Uh, I would give it to him to proofread and get notes, etc. So we tried to keep that UCLA um, 434 workshop vibe going after after we had gotten out of school. Anyway, um, but we were really helping each other out, and at that time, as I'm sure you recall, it was it was the golden age of sales yeah and this is the era of shane black selling lethal weapon and uh, a lot of movies that never got made but the script still sold for a million dollars right and we thought we, we thought well we can do this and um so we got together one one day one weekend really and just said well what can we you know what what kind of movie would we like to write that are what are these movies that are making a ton of money you know selling for a ton of money and big action, Joel Silver kind of uh, movies. So we said, well, let's try to figure something out. And we talked over a long weekend, and that's what that's what led to Face Off. That's how Face Off was, got, got made. All right, I'm so, not made, but written in many cases. Yeah, so, so well, obviously it didn't get made immediately, but, but, but how, no, no, no. How, how long was it? All right, so let, let's, let's back up. We'll, we'll come to how long sure. it was between completing whatever you think of as your draft to go out, your marketable draft, and um, selling it and having a movie made. How long did that take? Was it years and years, or was it just... Well, yeah, it took, years, it took years and years, and it had quite a journey. Um, we started working on it, um, I want to say, in 1990. It's like July. I think we got together July, July 4th weekend, the Memorial Day weekend in 1990 and we sat there in his office for like three or four days and just talked and talked and talked and talked about what we wanted to do and what could it be and i want at that time the real the the mandate in hollywood was uh but by now die hard had come out right yeah and so every studio was looking for their their very die hard hard. and so there was you know and um and so we were trying to think, well, what's, what would our die hard be? And we started out with, well, there hasn't been a, a, a prison movie in a long time. 
And so we had done research about at the Attica riots and, and uh, all these terrible prison riots. And we thought, well, let's do like Die Hard in a prison. Mm-hmm. Um, and we, the first few kind of iterations of that were undercover cop goes into a prison to, uh, you know, with a fake identity to get information about somebody. And then there, while he's in there, there's a riot and he's caught up in this riot and he needs to survive. And, um, that was basically the genesis, the genesis of it. And then Mike actually said, you know, that's pretty grim. What, what if it's in the future and the prisons in the future, a future prison, that would be cool. And so we start, that's really where, where kind of the discussion started. We sort of backed into the whole identity swap right. from there. Um, we did, you know, it took a, it took a few days to kind of back into that idea and, and then it was so crazy. We thought, well, it has to be far in the future to justify face face swapping, um, etc. So, so it definitely was a process, a, a a creative process that was kind of chaotic and lots of ups and downs and blind alleys that that got us to finally what the movie should have been. Now we then wrote a draft over that summer, and we. It, the studio, the agents, Mike's agents, because I didn't even have an agent, Mike's agency took it out in January, and um, and we sold it to, we optioned it to Warner Brothers at that time. Right. And it sat at Warner Brothers for a couple of years, and they just, they really weren't interested in it. Ironically, Joel Silver was the producer. Joel Silver's company, you know, was the one who brought it into Warner's, and, um, but they really were never that supported at Warner Brothers. They didn't understand it. One executive even said, well, how are you going to do this movie? Uh, the makeup is not nearly sophisticated enough uh, for one to make one person look like the other. And we were like, dude, it's the same actor. They just switch roles. <laughs> and, we, and there was a lot of that. There was a lot of that. People just didn't understand it. And... Um, so it really sat there for, I, I mean, I don't know how deep you want me to go into this history, but it sat at Warner's for two years until the option expired and we got it back. And you got it back, sure. And the and the junior executives who had been at Joel Silver's company at when, we, when our script was there had all moved on to other jobs. And they were all tracking the script when the option was up at Warner's. And the week that the option was up, they all three people called us out of the blue. We hadn't talked to them in two years, uh, and said, "What's going on with that script?" And one of them, the fellow named Kevin Messick, yeah, and he was working for a producer named David David Permit. And Kevin brought it. You know, we we really like Kevin. Kevin has now since gone on. He runs uh, uh, up until recently ran uh, Will Farrell Will Farrell's company. Um, Anyway, uh, he brought it, he walked it into David Permit. David Permit optioned it. And then David walked it into Paramount and it, and so, and we sold it to, ended up selling it to Paramount and that's where it got made. But that was over the course of, so it came out in 97. Um, so seven years. So just another overnight success. Yeah, exactly. Uh, all right. So, and, so, and by the way, I mean, I, I, there was one thing I want to stress is in that seven years, uh, there was never a sense that it was actually really ever going to happen. I mean, it, every day was fraught with, well, that's it, it's over, you know. Um, 
not going to happen. I mean, we had challenges like every movie, uh, setting it up, uh, you know, attracting talent, finding the right director. We had several directors on it before John Woo, right. um, who couldn't, who had trouble getting it going. And I mean, so many things had to go right and so many things had to go wrong for it to end up in the place it ended up. All right, so. so so let's talk about the 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 actual writing of the story, which is sure. uh, a reasonably um, twist twisty and somewhat complicated tale. Um, what, what were the big challenges in crafting the story before way before it ever got picked up? But what were the big challenges? Yeah, well, well, the main the main challenge with Face Off was and the spine of it really uh but the main challenge of face off was um in a in a way that the audience will accept create a emotional environment that would justify a human a human being mutilating themselves right and and undergoing something that is quite clearly insane well, well, um, well, Michael. For, first of all, most people most people would not think of um, turning themselves into either John Travolta or Nicolas Cage to be <laughs> mutilation. Well, at that point, it was just it was just characters on a page, so we really didn't know where all that was going. <laughs> but that's very true. Um, and in fact, I do have a funny story. I hope about about that. Actually, what you just mentioned. So anyway, but. Um, so, so it was always about, well, how can we sell this central idea that because, you know, at its barest, barest, barest DNA, face-off, any detail of it could be changed except one, which was the two guys have to switch identity. Mm-hmm. And, so, and so how do you justify a person uh, who you root, want to root for and invest in um, under agreeing to undertake this extreme, uh, you know, this extreme act. And so everything in the first act of Face Off, in all the drafts and in the movie itself, everything is, is um, in, that, in that script and in where it is to justify that act. So all the creative choices were made to, to reinforce that decision by John Archer, well, Sean Archer in the movie, to um, to make that decision. So we have the you know the death of his son in the beginning. We have this uh, uh, years of frustration uh, trying to catch this guy. We have the brutality of Caster Troy and the depravity of Caster Troy. Um, he's so dangerous, etc. We have this deep, deep. We hope to. I mean, I'm saying what we're what we went for. Right. Sure. Uh, this personal uh, animus between the hero, this compulsion to finish this, to get this done. Um, and uh, so that's really what all the creativity went toward in the first act of that movie, was to get him to agree to it and have in a way that the audience would say, okay, I understand, I, I'm with him. You know, it's a one-time thing, and it can save a lot of other people's lives, and um it's not over yet until we find that bomb, and et cetera. And so the, we worried a lot about that. We toiled a lot about that. There were a lot of different iterations of, of those circumstances that would justify why a person would do that. And have us, and have the audience... And one of them, by the way, in the first draft was that it was the future, 
far in the future, and we thought, well, you know, it's not as big a deal as, as it would be today. And and uh, the whole uh, problem, I gather, is is in making sure that the audience stayed with and empathized with the character that now changed to the other character. That's correct. Yes, that is correct. To, to care about them uh, and to un- and to understand why they would do that. I mean, the movie. Ah, uh, yikes! I mean, I could talk about Face Off forever well, and the whole experience of it and and everything, but. Um, the, the the best the best summation of the movie was made uh, in my opinion by Mike Werb's aunt, um, who Aunt Sunny, who who was at the premiere with us and um, who had nothing to do with the movie business particularly, but um, at all. But she said, at, we, "We said, oh, how did you like the movie?" And she said, "You know, I you know she did like it." She goes, "You know, at the end, by the end, I felt sorry for them both." <laughs> Well, and, that's great. Um, that's and, perfect. And to, yeah, and to me, I thought, you know what, mission accomplished. That's I mean, it. That was really the idea. These were two very, uh, very, very disturbed men—the hero and the villain. Well, and I, what I, they had been through was just horrifying. I certainly learned at UCLA, and definitely um, pr- practice in my teaching here, that the that it's a, a good thing when the audience cares for the antagonist a little bit too. Um, and, yeah. you know, Leo, I've said on this show more than once that, that Leo Tolstoy once said that the best stories come from good versus good. Well, that's not that's not face off because you have a bad guy. But but nevertheless, when you when you root for both sides, that's really painful for the audience. And that's excellent. Yeah. Oh, I completely, completely agree. Yeah. All right. So so I let's let's. Let, I was going to say, let's let's talk a little bit about your new show. Let's talk about professionals. Um, oh, for sure, yeah. What, what is it about? Because it hasn't aired yet, right? Right, it has not aired yet. Uh, Professionals is a independent, it's a, it's, a, it's a new breed, and it's sort of almost a test case. Um, because as we were saying before we started the interview, you know, our industry is changing so rapidly. Mm-hmm. Stream, the streaming uh, between... Now Disney Plus, but obviously Prime and, and Amazon Prime and Netflix, etc. There's really like a a, a a competition, a race to fi- to put find the next sort of business model around which to produce all this material because there's just this. This has always been the case: voracious uh, desire for material for for content, as it's now called. Um, to the point where, you know, Michael Bay is dropping a 50, 60, 70 million dollar movie on Netflix one night. I mean, it's insane. Yeah. The, the old way of, of movie making and movie distributing and movie exhibiting has completely, completely changed. Um, but the Professionals is a, is a TV series that, that the, the, really the, the force behind it is a producer named Jeff Most. Yeah. And Jeff produced The Crow and The Specialist and a bunch of he's been we've known each other for a long time. He's produced a bunch of movies, and Lion produced a bunch of movies. And um, Jeff had this sort of crazy idea to independently finance a whole season of television. Now, independent independently financing pilots has been done, and certainly independently financing movies has been done, but never, I don't think, has anyone ever been crazy enough to try to find the money to do a whole season of television and to create something that, you know, he would then own 
and be able to sell as a, you know, as a block. As a package. All season to TV. Yeah. And in fact, when that's, when he first pitched me on this whole thing, um, I told my agent, my agent was like, I never heard of this. This has never happened before. <laughs> this never happened. And that, that was like three years ago. And now my agent now calls Jeff from time to time and asks him advice about how, uh, you know, to say that this is now happening more often right? Um, as people explore ways. Because it's the age-old thing, you know? You want the money, but you want the control. Sure. And, y- y- you know, that's the devil's bargain in, in our industry. And I, I don't know if it's the same in, in theater, but, um, you know, you, you someone has to pay the bills. And those people very often want to have a say in the process and, and a say in what, what they're buying, essentially, what they're, what they're funding. And that could be a real problem for, for the creative side. So, um, so Jeff's idea was, well, if we independently finance it, then we don't need to deal with a network. We don't need to really deal with the studio because we'll be the studio. Right. Um, and that's, and it, I can't say it was a perfect uh, uh, process ultimately there was a lot of uncertainty and a lot of volatility in the process um, but at, by the end you know but that came true I mean by the end of it it was just really me and a couple of other writers um, and we did all the 10 drafts we never really with some notable exceptions we were never interfered with uh, we never had to throw out a script on a Thursday night because the network didn't like it. Mm-hmm. I mean, we never had to deal with any of that, uh, for better or for worse. Um, and so uh, I, I'm not saying it was an easy process, because there was, I said before, there was a lot of volatility around the production and yeah. all this other stuff. Uh, but, uh, but yeah, it was, it was a, very unique, a very unique working experience for me. And um, very, it was gratifying in that what I wrote was what was shot, and as I said, for better or for worse, that the audience <laughs> will decide ultimately uh, whether that was a whether that was a good decision on behalf of the producers or not. But um, but that's the way it was. What, and so what, anyway, uh, what's the show about? Just to, the show is set in the world of private military contractors. Okay. And um, what and which is a the, the the world's biggest industry that no one really has ever heard of. It, it's like a $500 billion worldwide industry, and you've heard of, like, Blackwater, and you've heard of Halliburton, um, but every government or every country basically has this these private, they're private companies, they're basically mercenaries, mm-hmm. but they're security specialists, they can do everything from cybersecurity, they provide security on uh, container ships, for example, that are going through pirates you know, pirate-filled waters. Uh, they can guard oil installations. They bodyguard. Like, when, for example, when you go to, uh, when you see these press conferences in the Middle East and you see uh, uh, ambassadors and so forth, these guys are all guarded by private, private. military contractors. Sure they are. The, yeah. The, yeah, that, and, the, that's... That they're not—they're frequently not Americans. Even they're—they're they're foreign nationals. Oh, yeah, it's an inter- hugely international industry, and in fact, our show is has an international cast. Our, our, our leads are Tom Welling, who plays the the main military contractor, right? And Brendan Fraser plays a like a billionaire, like Elon Musk type guy, 
Jeff Bezos type guy who Tom Welling's character protects. Um, but our cast is from South Africa, from France, from Spain, from Norway, from England, um, we, we, Ireland. I mean, we have, we have an international flavor to the cast, which was part of the point. So when, when, will, when will it air on, and on what, uh, what outlet? Well, um, it was made for European broadcast. Um, and the mandate, the creative mandate, going back to the beginning, was to create a American quality and style action TV show in the vein of like Hawaii Five-0 or Lethal Weapon, like a slick weekly action show, mm -hmm. uh, but make it for this European broadcast standards. Because I didn't know this, but um, there's a very serious embargo and quota system on American television shows in Europe. Huh. And, and so, uh, because otherwise it would just take over European broadcast. That's true. So, so this show was made with all the, you know, by adhering to all the treaties and all the requirements in terms of, uh, you know, cast and where it shot and, and who, you know, who were the production companies behind it? Where were they based, etc. But the end product was made to look like an American so even more um, even more hoops they, than normal oh my god I, you, the, the person who knows it all is jeff most my basically my creative partner on this and he kept a lot of the ups and downs uh, away from me but yeah this this was an unbelievable unbelievable task so let's um, let's talk about the basically you're like creating a a business model from the ground up. Sure. Well, yeah, because you're you're doing lots of things that are, sound like they're not the ordinary uh, course of business in Hollywood. Yeah. What I would say to people, because I actually live on a block in West LA where there's like several TV writers live on the street, and so we get together from time to time, and people would they would ask me about it, and I would say, look, here's the here's the difference, and and I would express this as an out of my own frustration, which is in a normal environment. Um, if I walked in or we walked in and sold a TV show, a pitch that the network or the studio really loved, the following week we would have office space, we would have a checkbook, we would be able to hire writers, we would have assistants, we would have, you know, we would have an infrastructure right, right. for how to do the show. Sure. Um, I would have a phone list with people of who to call if I needed something. None of that exists on this thing. Huh. There is, there's really no infrastructure. There's no central office. There's no writer's room. Um, there's nothing like that. It all exists in people's individual internet silos. Really? Um, so you, and, so you uh, had no writer's so it room. It makes it very hard. You had no writer's room. You didn't yeah. come together as a group. Right. Wow. That's and, exactly right. And all right. So, so then this is very good. Let's, let's explore this a little bit. What was your day-to-day -day process like? How did you, how did you operate? That's you were just operating via Skype or FaceTime or whatever. Yeah, yeah, we would uh, or email. Um, the, uh, yes, that was basically it. We we, um, we I would get sent writing samples like a norm like normal, but the writers because of the various treaty obligations had to be from Ireland and had to be from South Africa because wow. those were where our two most we got a lot of support from the Irish Film Commission and the South African Film Commission. Yeah. And so 
we had to hire a certain number of scripts had to be set aside for Irish writers and for South African writers. <laughs> so consequently, I was getting scripts from Ireland and I was getting scripts from South Africa. And um, the funny thing about the Irish writers was, you know, there's not a big, certainly compared to L.A., there's not a very big Irish television uh, industry. And so most of the writers whose work scripts I were getting, I was getting to consider, you know, they all basically worked for the, they all had credits on kind of the same TV show that like a nighttime soap opera that had been around forever, or they would have these other credits that you'd never heard of. So then I would, I would read their stuff and then I would go on IMDb or just go on the internet and just do a little background check. And the hilarious thing about the Irish writers is even though they all kind of worked on this nighttime soap opera, they all are like playwright in residence at the Royal Shakespeare, <laughs> uh, you know, theater. Um, they're all un- unbelievably accomplished uh, writers in in, the- in other realms, um, but they- but they pick up a few bucks writing TV sure. because there's not you know there's not there's not a lot of action. Um, so, uh, but the the and then the same kind of with South Africa. And the problem slightly became, there are way too many problems, actually, they probably get into with you here. But, um, you know, they, they very different culture in terms of what they understood their job to be um, and what I expected them to understand. Oh, like so what? Like what? There was a real, well... For example, what I discovered was so I would give the I would give them an outline, and granted the outlines were a little thin, but yeah. we were kind of making it up as we went along. So I would give them the pilot that I wrote and a couple of scripts that I had written as as kind of tonal guides, and I would give them an outline, or we would work on an outline on an episode. Um, but what I learned was that you know in Hollywood, when the showrunner gives you an outline. Um, you're expected to do the outline, of course, and do your and do the best, and try to mimic the showrunner's voice as much as possible. It's not, not, of course, to say that I don't want feedback. I don't want. I made it very clear I wanted every crazy idea they had uh, to come back to me and discuss if they had one. But essentially, it was you know how one works here, which is I give you the outline, you do the outline, and you try to make it as close to tonally as the pilot episode or whatever episode we had, uh, as that. And very often what I got back were scripts that were went way off the outline, <laughs> just way off. <laughs> and as it turned out, and I would say, well, what's the story here? What, why, why do you do that? And it speaks to sort of the difference in the, cult, the, the, the corporate culture almost, which is I discovered that in Ireland, when they hire a writer, they want they expect you to kind of do your own thing, and so they don't. They their mandate. They perceive their mandate to be different, the exact opposite, in fact, of what I expected their mandate to be. So there was a real learning curve involved, and we didn't have a lot of time to develop that. So anyway, long story short, what ended up happening was. Hired two writers in Ireland, hired one writer in South Africa to do all the scripts that were four scripts for South Africa. But and they all did exactly what I asked them to do, ultimately, and they all worked hard. 
but but ultimately I had to rewrite everything. Oh boy! Just because, yeah. I mean, just because, like I said, the, no fault of their own. Circumstances changed. We lost locations. I mean, you know how it works. I yes. Mean, once you get into production, it's all like a whole other ball of wax. So, um, they- so anyway, so at the end of the day, on professionals, I just literally sat in a hotel room for three months. Um, uh, just rewriting and trying to service production as best as I could. Okay, so how did uh, how did you everything. you were away from your family, or did you take your family with you? Yeah. No, no, I was away. I was so, away so how family. did you? How, th- this is always fascinating to me. Okay, so you're now not with your family. You're not in your comfort zone. You're not in your home. Um, what what were you doing to keep yourself, uh, for lack of a better word, sane? <laughs> um, well. Uh, actually, being away from home was was what was required um, because I I could never have done this from my back backyard office where I'm singing right now mm-hmm. with cats that need to be fed and kids that need to be driven somewhere <laughs> and you, you know just the daily uh, demands the impersonal kind of demands you, of daily life. You mean life? So. Yeah, exactly. And so for three months, I just dropped out of life. And I was just literally a drone sitting in an office. Now, on the upside, I don't mean to make it sound terrible. I mean, there's nothing better than being in production uh, on something that you wrote. Sure. Um, As you know, I mean, it's like the best feeling in the world. And so as trying as it was and as difficult as it was, I did have the gratification of working with very creative people, working with people I admire. In fact, and actors that I was, uh, we had a very strong cast, and I, uh, for most of those actors, some of the actors just did, you know, kind of wanted to be left alone to their process, but others were very collaborative, wanted notes and wanted feedback and stuff. So you can't do better than that. That's 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 like I'm assuming what you go through in in a rehearsal. You know, it's just the fun. That's really fun, and the fact that it was hard, well. It was hard. It was grueling. I shouldn't. I shouldn't say it was hard, but it was grueling in that it required a lot of, um, like, it was just like, uh, like circling the wagons, basically. And mm-hmm. so I just had no other demands on me. I could stay in my, in my hotel. It was a lovely hotel in the middle of Johannesburg, South Africa. Uh, I could go down into the mall that was attached to it and buy myself food um, and get go to Starbucks. Uh, and otherwise, I had to kind of sit there, um, be available by phone, be available by internet, and write write like crazy. So you and you weren't write, on write, write. you you were not spending a lot of time on set. You were mostly in your room writing. Yes, that was really that was one of the big yes. You nailed it because that was really the big downside for me. That the the, the the poor part about it for me was I didn't get to be on set very much because. We were shooting, we were shooting multiple two episodes at once. We had a lot of production pressure, a lot of production pressure, uh, because to get through our schedule in time, we had a lot of actor schedules that were very complicated. Um, we had, of course, budget issues because you always do, uh, and we were shooting in South Africa in Johannesburg, which, um, you know, is not the not the best place in the world to friendliest place in the world to shoot a TV show mm-hmm. um, from all kinds of reasons. And 
uh, it made no sense for me to go to the set because regardless if I could sit on a set and talk to actors and work with the director, which I was able to do a couple times, but that was always time away from stuff that was needed to be done for the following week or two weeks from now or three weeks from now. And in fact, my wife, who's also a writer, she had a movie, uh, the independent film that she wrote that was at Sundance in 2019 that was that was screening in uh, Karali Vary, I guess how you pronounce it, in, Ch- in what was Czechoslovakia. Right. Um, and I couldn't go. I, they, they were saying, oh, the producer was like, you should fly up there and see it. My kids were there. My wife was there for this premiere. And I was like, I can't leave for 48 hours. <laughs> too much. To too do. much. Too much. So, um, so that was one of the upsides was that I got to do 90% of the work. Uh, but also that was one of the downsides was I really, if I, if I didn't write it, it didn't, I was leaving it up to the fate. And um, that that was obviously not ideal. So so, so was there was there um, was there any huge challenges beyond the, the what you've already said and the obvious that you had to solve in some way? Is can you give us any kind of insight into the solving of a big problem? Um. Well, the problems were very uh, in in a odd way routine, and I don't mean to. To, to make it sound like they weren't unbelievably stressful and, and volatile, but they're pretty routine for a television production. Right. Which is, you never have enough time. You never have enough money. Um, South Africa was, uh, Johannesburg and Environs were a tough place to shoot. They don't have a, a there is a film industry there, of course, um, but, but it's not like here. Um, there was, there was a lot of sort of just, the moving bits and pieces were not always harmonious. Um, and there was just a lot of challenges uh, like that around it. So, um, would, so would you say that it, was a, it was a huge job of being patient and disciplined? Is that, was that a big part of it? Oh, yeah, without a doubt. And I have to say, relying on the professionalism, certainly of our actors, of our lead, uh, Brendan Fraser and Tom Welling, who, of course, have done everything, um, those guys really helped set the set the tone for the production and kept the confidence level up uh, among everybody because they, you know, they're total pros. They showed up every day to do their work under sometimes under because it's an action show, you know. Right. I mean, there's lots of physicality involved, lots of rugged locations involved. Um, uh, you know, just not the easiest production in the world not a lot of comforts dealing, away from their hotel uh, right dealing with the elements so yeah yeah and the only the only i always said the only thing that was a hundred percent great was the weather we never lost a day really to bad weather um which was a blessing because we really didn't have any days to lose that, that, um, that's kind of cool so, but but what like but i will say this like for example and this may be of interest to your listeners one of the challenges was completely self-inflicted, uh, which was the scripts I wrote were all, um, when I started writing them, they were all 60 pages. And the producer said, oh, no, 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 45, 45 pages. And I was like, are you sure? They're like, yes, 45. So I started writing the scripts 45 pages. Well, that's, that's predicated on this idea that you're going to shoot 
uh, one page a minute, as you know, one, uh, one page equals one minute of screen time. Right. Well, as it turned out, my pages have a lot of white. The way I write, literally, is I have a lot of white space. I use a lot of double, uh, uh, what do you call that? Spacing? Um, double space? Double line, you know. Um, and so we were getting, for every minute, every page, we were only getting 45 seconds of screen time. So all the episodes started coming in while we were shooting them, coming in short. And so that became a whole other crisis. Oh, boy. Because we suddenly, I suddenly had to write, create new characters, create new situations, tape characters that, that we had, and put them in new situations that we could shoot um, without screwing up the whole schedule uh, for everybody else, etc. So, so it, And then who was going to shoot it? We didn't really have a second unit, and... I mean, it became this. It became just as chaotic as any kind of film school shoot might be. Wow! Um, wow! Wow! But it, obviously, the stakes are a lot higher, and you're dealing with people who are a lot more, um, <laughs> a, a lot more accredited. And I will say that I, I can't speak for anybody because they maybe they all hated it, but it certainly evoked a need to kind of improvise, to be flexible to um, come back and solve problems, um, to uh, a lot of sort of keeping ahead of the problems or pushing the problems ahead of us. And um, so I'm hopeful that I, I've seen a lot of the episodes now, of course, that were deep, deep in post. And so far, they, I think, knock wood, they all look great. They all look very, very expensive, which was the point. Um, they really do look like, you know, big action-y feature film type action. Um, and I'm just hopeful that, that, uh, so anyway, so long story short, I'm hopeful that buyers will now, once they see the whole thing, because we haven't sold it yet. I mean, we have a couple of output deals in Europe, uh, people who put money in just based on the package yeah, and we'll broadcast it in Germany. We have like the biggest broadcaster in Germany and signed on to distribute, to show it broadcasted and, one in Scandinavia, et cetera. But, you know, we, we want to sell it to broadcast here. We want to maybe, it's not really designed to be a streaming show, but what does that mean at the end of the day? I mean, if somebody wants to stream it, you know, you're not going to probably say no. But you're talking about... But I'm about not involved in that. In, in the, in the you're, not, you're not involved in the selling of it. Yeah. I'm it, not involved in, the, in any of that. In fact, the producer I, um, is in... Uh, Latvia right now. I mean, he's in Europe right now. He's going to go to all these selling markets that I've never even heard of um, over the uh, over the next few months, and just like show the show and see if people want to want to buy it for their territory. So, so that's a, it, a license it for the territory. It's a it was a huge financial risk to go into this for the producers. Yeah. <laughs> oh yeah. Gigantic. Huge. Gigantic. Wow. Yes. Wow. Gigantic financial risk. All right, so would and, so and they, yeah. would you say that this is the the major difference between when you first got in the business and now? Earlier, we alluded to how much the industry has changed in the last thirty years or so. Yeah. What right. is this one of the major changes? What What are the major things you've seen that are really very different today? Well. Um... Uh, well, let's go back, if you don't mind. Sure. I'll try to do it fast. So, so when I started out in the early 80s, when I was in film school in the mid-80s, um, although I didn't have this, I didn't know this at the time, 
but I did allude to the fact that, oh, specs were selling for a million dollars. And um, what, it, what I didn't know and what a lot of people didn't know in that moment was that we were living in a bubble and that in Hollywood as writers and that bubble in, as movie writers and, mo- and the movie industry. Yeah. And that bubble was created in the early 80s by the development of home video. And so in the, in the early 80s, when movies started coming out on VHS tapes, um, this became a whole – and basically it was just libraries, be, studio libraries being transferred onto these shitty VHS tapes and sold for $100 uh, to video stores that, that, that then rented them. Well, this is a whole new revenue stream that had never existed. Up until that point, movie studios made their money at the box office. Right. And by licensing their show, their movies onto television, and that was it. And so now suddenly, home video on VHS tapes brought in just millions upon millions upon millions of dollars that that just never existed before. And then on top of that, ten years later, you did they did the same thing with DVDs. So so for many many years, Hollywood was flush with cash flush with cash and this was a whole this home video thing was a whole also like the wild west and so when i was coming up out of school you you could you know studios were hiring writers for rewrites left and right there were all these small companies that would hire writers uh they're looking for stuff that goes straight to video uh cheap movies that you could show in the theater there was empire films and canon films and and all these all these smaller companies that just were cranking out movies left and right, um, and that went on for until like the mid to late '90s. But eventually, that revenue stream kind of flattened out. Right. And that and that created a at the same time movies were becoming more and more expensive to market, and so that created a, the conditions of a contraction in the movie business by by the late '90s, early 2000s. And that really hit ahead like in mid-2000s when the, the Writers Guild strike came and the financial crash came. And by then, the movie business was really not a, a shell of its former self. Now, going back 10 years, while this process was happening in the mid to late 90s, while this was starting to contract, and I'll give you an example, a concrete example of what I mean by contract. So my writing partner, Mike, was the first writer on the Curious George adaptation for right. Imagine Films. Right. Okay, It had taken a long time for Imagine Films, which is Brian Grazier and Ron Howard's company, to get the rights to Curious George because the, the, the woman who was the wife, the widow of the guy who created it, H.L. Ray or something, uh, never wanted to sell it. But she finally sold the rights to Brian Grazier and Ron Howard, and Mike was the first writer. So Mike did his draft, and they... It was going to be animated, but then Arnold Schwarzenegger was interested, so they they were going to make it live action and blah, blah, blah. So Mike moved on to other – he finished his work, and they hired somebody else, and Mike moved on, which is common. The movie finally got made, I want to say maybe 10 years later, and when the arbitration for the credit came, Mike ended up getting a credit on it. But he discovered in the arbitration that 50 writers had been paid to work on Curious George. Wow. Wow. 50. Wow. And, and yeah, and, and that's a lot, you know, and to put it in other terms, that's a lot of mortgages. That's a lot of, (laughs) 
that's a lot of people. That's a lot of dues for the Writers Guild. That's yeah. a lot of you know private school tuition. But now, but they don't do that anymore. Like studios, if they develop something, they'll maybe de- develop it with a couple writers. Maybe they'll hire a rewriter if it's an A-list, AAA, triple A-list writer to, to develop, to, to rewrite it. But if they don't get a movie out of it, they don't, they don't pursue it. Right. And, and like Disney now, of course, is the model for the future because they never need to hire, they, uh, they never need to listen to a pitch or buy a spec script ever because they have all that IP so they can just mine all that absolutely star marvel you know star absolutely Wars forever and ever so those are opportunities that writers aren't getting in the movie business anymore now on the flip side because of the movie business contracting we suddenly have a town full of pretty talented people who maybe haven't become Shane Black like a brand name but are still really good at their job they can't find. They're not. Maybe they're not finding opportunities doing those development jobs anymore. Those rewrite jobs. So they go. Okay. Well, I guess I'll have to do TV. And and because of that, all these people who were you know maybe doing okay in the movie business suddenly had all the power and all the control on their own TV show. Yeah. And so consequently, you were getting. You got The Sopranos. You got Breaking Bad. You got all. You have all these talented people. Now saying, you know, TV is not so bad because I was probably a perfect example of this. I wanted to write movies. My father was a TV writer. I would see my father come home at the end of the week. He was a basket case. I was like, I didn't want to work that hard. I didn't want to work in TV. <laughs> yeah. Because it was, it was like takes over your life. It devours your life. Oh, sure. And so as long as I could make a, make a living, uh, make money working in movies, I got to work from home. Uh, I didn't. My deadlines were always six weeks from now. You know, it was a very different lifestyle than going to an office every day, having to produce pages every day, having to be ready for the curveball from the network every day. You know, working forty-eight hours on a weekend, very grueling and hard work. And so, anyway, but now you had all these people who had no other choice really, but to seek to make a living. In, in the TV world. And around that same time, fortuitously, um, was the rise of sort of these cable channels like AMC, um, uh, A&E was, you know, they all sort of started uh, um, producing their own material. And lo and behold, shows like The Walking Dead or The Sopranos or HBO, etc. they started producing their own shows. And here's the thing, on network TV, the stakes are very high. It's very expensive to keep a show on network TV. Um, and so consequently, if your show doesn't get the ratings, it's just gone. It has no time to develop. It's just, it's just thrown off network TV. Sure. If you don't reach a certain plateau of viewership. On cable, like Breaking Bad and, and like The Walking Dead, that bar of success is much lower in terms of viewership. Don't need as many so if viewers. You had a devoted fo- if, you, if you had a devoted following that was maybe going to be, you know, a fifth of the size of the modern family audience, let's say, but showed up every week to watch The Walking Dead, that's a considered a success. Absolutely. And so a lot of these networks are a lot more open to shows that have a smaller audience, more of a niche audience. 
And consequently, that's led to this gigantic boom and in creativity. And the, the example I always give my students is, look, I, and I don't know if you're a fan, but look at Netflix with BoJack Horseman. Sure. Here's a, here's a show about an, an animated show about a half a horse human and all his problems. And it's brilliant, frequently brilliant. The first few seasons were. Um, it's like the sky's the limit. You know, can you imagine? Can you imagine walking into NBC and pitching oh, BoJack Horseman well, to, to an NBC? I well, mean, they, they they would call security. Well, at, at one time, right. at one time, you could pitch a show called Mr. Ed um, about a talk. Yeah, right. <laughs> you, you know, right. Exactly. We did. We did have. We did have my mother, the car. We did have Hogan's Heroes. You had the Munsters and the Adams Family. You had all these really unusual. Uh, you had the. You had Batman. You had shows that were unusual in their. They were kind of fantasy shows. You hardly ever see those on TV anymore. Not not on prime. Not on the major networks. Yeah. Not and not. I mean, those were light. Those were family entertainment. Um, you see, obviously, supernatural stuff is more edgy. Um, sure. But that's that's really true, and, and so everyone kind of retreats into their uh, what they know they can make money with, and 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 again, you see it all the time. Why do the studios make so many sequels and reboots and all that? And the answer is because they stand a better. It's not that people in Hollywood don't have great ideas; it's that the stu- movies are so expensive to make and to and then to market that. They need an edge. They're always looking for an edge that's going to help bring awareness to it. Because, you know, as you well know, you have to make your money that first weekend. That's another way the business has changed, too, is, is how in the movies you have to make your money the first weekend because that will that whatever your first weekend growth is, that will determine pretty much what how much money you can make. They right. can pretty much add it, figure it out after the second weekend. So so um, so what you're what you're what's interesting I, is is you've got two things going on there. One is that the industry has become more sliced up and niched, where little productions of of TV series can actually become successful with a far smaller market. But at the same right. time, you need to have for a feature, you need to have these gigantic opening weekends, way bigger than ever before. So so that's two that's ends correct. of the spectrum. Yeah. That, yeah, and and so they become more like events. I mean, Martin Scorsese got into a lot of trouble recently because he said that, oh, the Marvel films are not cinema, and uh, and that they're more they're more spectacle, and and that's really true. And by the way, this is this is this, there's nothing. I always I always tell my students it's always been the same thing just over and over. And in the fifties, um. You know, television television came along in the 50s. It was actually developed earlier, but World War II sort of slowed its development. But when time TV came along in the 50s, the movies freaked out. The movie studios freaked out because now for the first time, there was a viable home entertainment that competed with with the movies. And so movies became, that's when we got Cinebascope. That's when we got, you know, these huge roadshow productions. Yeah. Yeah. Massive big screen productions, musicals, things that TV didn't do well, right? Um, because they were trying to carve out an identity, trying to maintain an identity uh, that was different from what people were getting at home. 
and uh, and that friction has always still still been there, and it's still it's still there. It's still it's definitely still there. Yeah, absolutely. So so I've been speaking with Michael Colleri, one of the great um, successful writers of our day uh, in the motion picture industry and TV for close to an hour and eight minutes, believe it or not. Um, we're going to sort of wind this thing down. I'm, I'm, I'm wondering, um, in all of your experiences, can you uh, share with us a quirky or a weird or an offbeat or a strange or just a plain funny story that's happened to you over time? Uh, I, I will, I will share a face-off, a face-off story. Great, great. Okay. Yeah. It speaks to a little bit of what we were talking about before. So there's, there's a moment in face-off, uh, it, it, for those of your listeners who've seen, seen it, um, in which, uh, John Travolta's, John Travolta, the person is now inhabited by Nicolas Cage's character. Yes. Pastor Troy, the bad guy. And so one day Mike Werb and I were on the set and we get this phone call, get this message that said, uh, John Travolta would like to see you. Can you go see John Travolta in his, in his trailer? Okay. Now, John Travolta was obviously on the set all the time. Very warm and lovely person. Uh, um, very friendly to, to all and to people who would come and watch. Just, just, Really a, a, a warm, warm presence. So this sounded kind of stern to us. So we didn't, as writers, we were always waiting for the other shoe to drop. So we go to his trailer, and we walk in. He goes, I, I want to talk to you guys about the scene we're shooting today. I'm like, okay, what scene is it? He said, well, it's the scene where I'm now the bad guy, and I'm meeting with my brother, the, uh, Alessandro Nivola Pollux. And, um, and I say this line about my ridiculous chin. I'm like, we're like, what? He's like, well, it sounds like I'm, I'm insulting myself <laughs> because there's a scene there where, where Pollock, where his brother says, I can't stand to look at you. I, you know, the, I think the dialogue is something like uh, Travolta says, I, you're not the, to his brilliant brother. You're not the only one with the brains. And the brother says, now, but I am the only one with the look. And he says, do you think it's easy for me? With it? Look at this face. Look at this nose. Look at this ridiculous chin. And John Travolta was very concerned that, that we were making fun of him. <laughs> and, and this gets back to what you were saying before about, well, who wouldn't want to be turned into John Travolta? That's exactly what we said to him. He said, oh, no, this is, this is how we intend it, which is everyone in the audience is going to laugh because inside you're Nicolas Cage and you're so jealous of John Travolta's look that you feel the need to disparage them. So you're, you're making fun. So when you say this ridiculous chin, it's because you know you are now inhabiting the body of really a famous movie star yes. who's famous all over the world for his good looks, for being <laughs> handsome. So he, he got that, and it's actually kind of one of the funnier moments in the movie when he does it with a lot of flourish. He's definitely in on the joke of it all. Um, but that was, that I, I, we found that pretty funny because <laughs> at the same time, he, he, he's John Travolta. He's been in all these great movies. Um, but he's still a little insecure about, <laughs> you know, his looks and what is it we were really saying. And, uh, he showed a little vulnerability there that, uh, was somewhat endearing actually. Well, and, but, and, uh, and isn't it human. funny, isn't it funny that he was in a, a weird way, um, sort of saying that maybe Nicolas Cage wasn't that good looking. 
because it was <laughs> one or the well, other. <laughs> yeah, maybe, maybe so. <laughs> uh, they got along great, so they they really got into a rip with each other. I think they really enjoyed each other, and I, I'm hoping that one day uh, somebody at, at HBO will put the two of them in a true detective. Oh, true what? Detective. Yeah. Because they were so great together in that movie, and um, they both natural mimics and enjoyed mimicking each other, and etc. Oh, that, that, so I don't that, know if that's funny enough. The only other funny one I have was I did was able to work Mike and I uh, briefly uh, on an Arnold Schwarzenegger movie, uh, Collateral Damage. Yes. Um, and uh, well, that was produced by Hawk Koch. That, that that was a Hawk. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, that's and, where I that's where I met Hawk exactly. That's the, my only time working with him, but it was a lot of fun. But it was only for a brief period of time, and we were down in Mexico uh, scouting the movie, and um, I was trying to get back to the states because I was going to propose to my then girlfriend. And the producer on the movie, Steve Ruther, said, "Well, he made it like a joke, and he was like, well, I hope you have a prenup.' And I'm like." <laughs> There's no way I would ever ask my girlfriend for a prenup. She'd kill me. And um, I, and so uh, he said this, and he said to, literally to Arnold Schwarzenegger, who, by the way, I, I'm not saying I know well. I don't at all. I've worked with him on this movie. Yeah. I met with him a couple of times. Uh, but Ar- but Ruther, Steve Ruther said to Arnold, can you believe this guy He's getting married without a prenup? And Arnold Schwarzenegger, I had the honor and privilege of Arnold Schwarzenegger calling me a fucking schmuck. <laughs> For not getting a prenup. <laughs> uh, <laughs> you're a fucking schmuck. He said, I, I, without I, not getting the prenup, what's wrong with you? <laughs> uh, I'm not sure he ever got a prenup either. But, uh, who knows? It cost him a lot. I do know occasionally when I have guests over I've got my diploma framed on the wall from UCLA and I like to walk over and say look I, I've I've got an autograph from Arnold Schwarzenegger because he was the governor <laughs> of the state at the time and he's on the diploma oh, that's right. <laughs> excuse me yeah that's right he was he this is prior to him being governor um and uh, prior to his divorce too so I hope he did have a <laughs> I don't know if he did have a one, but he, he, have a prenup. But I'm I'm not sure in the it. I'm not sure in the case of either one of them that they would be hurting for money. But that's a whole other story. Um, no, 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 not not uh, no way. So all right. So last question: um, What would you sure. say is a good piece of advice for those who are starting out in the business, especially as writers? Uh, would you have a, a tip or a good piece of advice to to lend them, or maybe somebody that's in a little bit but trying to make it to the next level? You know, um, that, that's actually a great question, especially the way you phrased it right there at the end. Uh, I think what makes our business different from maybe other businesses is there really is no, I don't mean to make this sound like cynical at all, but there really is no end to the frustration that you will encounter. <laughs> right. Um, and we are not born and raised to uh, see that as normal. Okay. And I think, most people, and I've seen them come and go, as I'm sure you have over the years, we have students and whatnot, people who are promising. But the thing that, that I've seen, sadly, is that people don't persist and they don't stay on because of their lack. They get frustrated and they have a lack of support. Um, and so you want to surround yourself with people who uh, sympathize, at least, 
and support you for what you're trying to accomplish because there really is no end to the frustration of it. And regardless of what level you, you achieve, um, you know, the, the story, uh, the anecdote of the show is the 1999 Oscars uh, when Saving Private Ryan lost Best Picture to Shakespeare in Love. And, they, and if you happen to watch that, there was a shot of Steven Spielberg who was, uh, you know, his reaction when that movie, his movie lost to Shakespeare in Love. And you see the frustration on his face. You know, the, 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 uh, he's just very upset. And if that can happen to Steven Spielberg, um, you know, that can happen to, to anybody. Mm-hmm. And so the next level will, will, always, will also bring frustration. And the next level will also, after that, will bring frustration. And you just really have to learn to have a, uh, to accept that. It, it, it really is a challenge. It's almost like a, a, a challenge for Buddhism, you know, to become a Buddhist. You really have to let go of the attachment to that frustration to accept it and just keep doing what you can do, which is your work, you know, and um, that's very and good trust advice. In your work and trust in your work ethic and not take any of that personally because it's happening. That frustration's happening to everybody. It's not personal. Um, it's just the fact that to get anything done in this business is it, like my friend Jeff, who's got this show made. I mean, the level of inertia and reinvention that has to be overcome all the time, every day. And so don't do it if you don't love it, because it will be hard and it will take a lot. It will be take a lot out of you. Mm, um, is... The good news is there's a lot of people who will support you, who understand. Who, I mean, look at Hawk Koch. I mean, uh, my recommendation would be is listen to the podcast you did with Hawk. I mean, that's a guy who's done it all. Yep. Um, and... Still is like the nicest guy in the world. Still the most positive guy. Loves movies. I think that's what he said. He's never worked a day in his life because he loves what he's doing. Exactly. Uh, but I can promise you he's dealt with unbelievable problems. Oh, t- um, tremendous. Uh, and, and, yeah, that stuff he's had to overcome. Well, I, I like to tell my students, you know, uh, and, and you'll certainly understand this big time, is... Uh, Probably the most successful director monetarily in the history of Hollywood is Spielberg, as you were talking about. Um, yeah. And and what we we see in the trades, we see uh, Steven Spielberg's next picture is this, or he's producing that, or whatever it is. What we're not seeing, we never see, are the literally dozens, if not hundreds, of projects that he gets said no to. And we don't know what yeah. those frustrations are because he's got all these other successes. But he has many no's, probably far more no's than yeses in his bag of, of work. Oh, without yeah, without a doubt. And if he got discouraged, I mean, he, he, he you know, he, he and that again, that guy has tons of support. He could do any, oh, like any number sure. of things. Uh, he could pick up the phone and have a job anytime he wants. Anytime you know? he wants. But uh, that's not what that's not what he's in it for. He's in it for the the challenge. He's in it for the fulfillment. He's uh, y- you know, he's in it for his voice. Right. What he can what he can do new and so. Well, uh, I, I, that that yeah. is that is a very valuable lesson, and I thank you for saying it. It's the uh, first time anyone said it quite that way. Um, I greatly appreciate you coming on the show today, Michael. This has been enormous amounts of fun and and lots of fantastic information. Yeah, 
thank you so much for oh thank you so much for asking and i i, I could say i'm really going to get caught up on the other uh the other folks you have because you have some really great great people on and so we've come to the end of today's story beat if you like this podcast please take a moment to give us a comment rating or review on whatever app or platform you're listening to your support helps us bring more great episodes to you this podcast would not have been possible without the generous support of the Center for Media Innovation on the campus of Point Park University. Until next time, I'm Steve Cuden, and may all your stories be unforgettable.